0: Two years ago, about right now, there was this phenomenon happening in the world. Anybody remember what it was? There was a virus going around. We met only a few more times before we quit meeting two years ago. Two years ago, end of March, I mean end of February, beginning of March, we really didn't know what was coming. We knew something was coming. It was a little unusual. We really had no idea. Two years now, here we are. There's something happening in the world that's new again. And we have no idea what is coming. Whether uh, two years ago, our world changed pretty significantly. We don't know if that's the case now or not. We do not know that. So it's something for us to think about. Actually, I think I'd rather have a virus than war. David thought so too. After he took that census, because of the pride of his heart, He took that census, and the Lord gave him three choices. He said, what do you want, three years of famine, three months before your enemies, or three days of pestilence? And he said, I will choose to fall into the hands of the Lord because the mercies of man are cruel. I do not want to fall in the hands of my enemies. And so he chose, in his case, the virus because it came from the Lord. So here we are. We don't know what the future is, but uh, I'm sure we're all thinking a lot of thoughts. It is time, like it always is, to trust the Lord. But this morning, my topic is a topic on uh, that was actually requested, and I will take this topic that's relevant to all of us, a topic of lukewarmness. Top title is Thou Art Lukewarm. Now this is actually not a judgment. (laughs) This is actually a scripture. Thou art lukewarm. The apostle John was banished on an island at the end of his life, the island of Patmos. That's an island where Rome sent their political and uh, political prisoners and criminals that they didn't want to get, get rid of. They put them on this island. And this island was then guarded by Roman soldiers that prevented people from leaving the island. While they were on the island, the prisoners, I understand, had to take care of themselves. They had to find their own shelter, their own food. And a lot of people actually died. A lot of criminals or a lot of prisoners died of exposure and starvation, and sometimes by a criminal activity amongst the, uh, the criminals there. Tradition has it that the Christians at Ephesus sent supplies to John, and he survived because of that. And that is the true meaning of when I was in prison, you visited me. That's actually what that, in context, what that means. They provided for his needs. And uh, tradition also says he was there for eight months. But while he was there, he, had, he was not forsaken by God, even though he was banished by the world. He had some of the greatest revelations that anyone ever received there. He was there in the spirit on the Lord's day when he heard this voice behind him. And this was a great voice, like a trumpet blast. I, I I try I was trying to imagine what it sounded like. It's like a blast of a trumpet, a voice behind him. And this voice introduced himself as the Alpha and the Omega, that's the beginning and the end. And it told him to write in a book in a scroll what he sees and give it to these seven churches. And when he turned around to look. The first thing that it mentions that he saw was seven lampstands and in the middle of those seven lampstands was this majestic, majestic, awesome being that John called the son of man. This was the Lord Jesus, the one that he had walked with, the one that he had leaned on his breast physically but now he was seeing him in his majesty and but what i want to bring out about this is that this son of man was in the midst of seven golden lampstands candlesticks lampstands and he was in the midst of them and i want you to picture him because uh i don't picture that seven that seven the candle, the often that you see in, in Jewish literature, about uh, the, the one candle straight up and you have th- uh, three on either side. I'm I imagining that these, these lampstands were actually, and he was, he could walk amongst them and he could trim their lamps, he could check their oil, he could check their brightness. He could, um, he was in the midst of them because these seven lampstands represent seven churches. And so these seven churches, the Lord goes around and he um, he is checking them out and has an interest in them. They are his people. And he's ministering to them. He's checking them out. He's brooding over them because he is the bridegroom. The church is the prospective bride. He's the prospective bridegroom and he's he's checking it out. Well, one of those churches he was brooding over there is in Revelation chapter 3. You can turn there. Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14, and we'll read this entire section here at the end of the chapter. And unto the church, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things saith the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold. I would thou wert hot, cold or hot. Sorry. So that thou, then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him, and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am sat down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. You're familiar with this passage. Christ had something positive to say about all the other churches, but this one he had nothing good to say about it. In the other churches, take like Thyatira, there the doctrine of Jezebel had been is was widespread in that church, but there were a few who had not accepted. That doctrine and the Lord recognized them in Sardis the church that had a name that it was living but it was actually dead there were a few that had not soiled their garments Jesus knew who they, who they were and he gave them recognition and a promise but there's nothing like that given to Laodicea this lukewarmness, whatever it is, seems to have fully saturated the church from one end to the other. And that is a tendency, and we heard that tendency this morning, how when something starts, it spreads, even with boxes and balls. That's an illustration. Um, We affect each other. We are pushed, you know, false doctrine spreads, a little leaven spreads. The ten spies who came back from Canaan and gave a false report spread that to the entire nation. Now the other is true also. There have been revivals that have been started by a few people. And with that zeal and fire and fervor and spirit-filled anointing, it spread also. The point is we are affected by the herd, positively and negatively. And that is not to say that we have no responsibility. We are actually responsible for our actions and our attitudes because we are not helpless victims to what goes around us. We're not helpless victims, but it's a tendency. We tend to become like what's around us. By the time Jesus came to the scenes this cancer called lukewarmness had spread through the church so that there is no evidence of anyone to the contrary recognized. There was no opposing party or individual in this church. Now, I want you to think a little bit about this. We ought to remember that when we think that unanimous unity is the best thing for a church. Not always. Sometimes a contrary voice is the lifeline of a church. This church no longer had that voice that influence a contrary voice when the church was at a bad place and has no profit then there's nothing good there anymore so the lord came to this lights this lampstand this church he came to this lamp and he evaluated it and it sickened him <clears throat> it repulsed him. It's actually a statement that we can use that I hear around our home a little more than I like. That's disgusting. There was no commendation for this church from our loving Savior. Did I know thy works? He said, "You're neither cold nor hot. You're lukewarm." I wish you were cold or hot. And Jesus prefers coldness and hotness over lukewarmness. Now, here's a little bit of a dilemma, a problem. Can Jesus really wish for someone to be cold? I mean, the Lord. He paid such a price for everyone, and it's very clear that the Lord desires all to be saved. Can he actually wish for someone to be cold? He said, I wish you were cold or hot. But this dilemma has caused some people to think, well, in Ephesus, uh, not Ephesus, in Laodicea, not that far away, there were hot springs, and the hot springs were very refreshing. They were rejuvenating, and what people bathed in them to you know what do they call that um purge themselves and things like that to get the benefits, health benefits from it and then you have cold water from a well they're both refreshing right so some people thought well cold and hot are both good but I don't think so I don't think that's correct uh matthew twenty seven uh matthew four twenty four verse seven in Jesus talking there in Matthew 24, and he says, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Cold is a bad thing. Cold is not good. So how do we explain that Jesus would rather have people cold? Well, in Second Peter... In 2nd Peter there's a few verses here you don't have to turn here we'll, we'll look at some other scriptures a little later but in chapter in 2nd Peter chapter 2 20 and 21 he's Peter is talking about those that are deceived by false prophets Christians who were deceived by false prophets who promised liberty but were actually bringing bondage and uh this is what it says there for if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandments delivered unto them. Basically, he's saying it's better if they would have remained cold Cold is better than this lukewarmness, this deception, this in the middle, this turning back. So while being cold is not the ultimate desire, it's not the ideal, it is better than being lukewarm. Of the three, of the three, cold, hot, and lukewarm, lukewarmness, is the worse. There is no place in God's plan for lukewarm Christians. So what is this thing called lukewarmness? A lukewarmness, yeah, that might be the main point of description this morning. I'll have to try to look at the time there. But lukewarmness can be described as a form of a Christian life, a form of Christian commitment, a form of Christian conviction that is not wholehearted. For some, it may never have been wholehearted. Lukewarmness can be a professing, baptized, church-going Christian that has never sold out to the Lord. In other words, a profession was made, but a reserve was held. Like at an auction, when you are selling to the highest bidder, but you hold a reserve. There's a reserve. It's not an absolute auction. I, I reserve the right to not sell. Well, that's, if that's in a Christian's life... That can be called, well, it can be called lukewarmness, just one way you can call it. But what is missing in this life is a a release, a giving up, a taking the hands off my life and giving it unreservedly and trustingly to the Lord Jesus. So that is one type of lukewarmness. And some may never have actually had a true real life with god but the laodicean church was a true church and there's ample evidence and i want you to turn to this in Colossians chapter 4 there's ample evidence that they were a real church they were a true church they were a dedicated church Chapter 4 of Colossians, starting at verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring, laboring fervently for you in prayers that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he has a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea, first reference of the church here, and them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea. Salute the brethren that are in Laodicea, there they are, and Nymphus and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it also be read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now, that epistle from Laodicea has generated a lot of discussion. What is that epistle? Was there a lost letter? Was there a letter that, that, he, that Paul wrote to Laodiceans and it got lost? Or was that actually something it was? Well, that was actually the, the circular letter of the Ephesians, and it happened to be at Laodicea at the time. And then when it comes over, it's, just, it's a circular letter. Well, we don't know. But Laodicea was a godly church about 10 miles from Colossae, 100 miles east of Ephesus. Epaphras, this man that he's talking about, founded the Colossian church, and he might have founded the Laodicean church. But now it's 35, 40 years later. We have a godly church founded by a godly leader, and this church is receiving the very first inspired letters almost directly from the apostle Paul, and you ask the question what could possibly go wrong? This church. Well, I tell you what can go wrong. They had a lot of wealth. For one thing, Laodicea was an extraordinarily wealthy city. Um they came from. They had a lot of natural resources. They had banking. They had trade. The place where it was at, when an earthquake devastated the area and a lot of the cities faced a lot of destruction, Rome, which is far away, I don't know, 400 miles away, I don't know, um, offered help to rebuild after the earthquake, and uh, a lot of the other cities accepted that help. But later, see, is that now we don't need help, and they just rebuilt themselves from their own from their own resources. So so it had wealth. And because they had wealth, they had a lot of self-sufficiency. They can deal with their own issues. We can handle our own problems. Thank you. And this worldly attitude, surprise, <laughs> surprise, entered the church. Wealth, self-sufficiency, We can handle our own problems. We're just fine. And this situation developed into complacency. We are at a good spot. I am rich. I'm increased with good. I have need of nothing. That's where they were at. This Christianity is mixed, it has lost its clarity, its enthusiasm. It's Christ-centered zeal. It has wandered and strayed far away from where Apostle Paul was when he said, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ and to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. This single-mindedness, this wholeheartedness, this unreserved commitment and zeal for Christ and the gospel is now missing here. Could it be at the Laodicean church service, at the service when they gathered together, that they were thinking more about their bank accounts than they were about their heavenly crown jewels? Like Amos, when he dealt with the professed people of God, Amos dealt with the Israelites which were not doing well. And he said, and he said, this is what you're saying, Amos 8, 5a. When would a new moon be gone that we may sell corn and a Sabbath that we may go send forth wheat? The people were saying, when would a fast days be over so that we can get back to our normal lives and do the work that we really want to do? When will church be over so I can go to my leisure or my recreation or to my, or next, yeah, to my work? It's this little heart, this little passion for the things of God. <clears throat> Do we see the church services and prayer meetings? And our devotional times as a burden. Are they in the way of your real life? Do you need to get them out of the way so you can get on with your actual life? I'm asking questions. I don't know. Where would the in church at? But I'm asking us questions. Is Christianity an add-on? It's part of your social structure. But your real life is in the work world. You can't wait to get out there again, or with your friends, or with your hobby, or whatever inspires you. Amos also said that this is, this is God's response to where the Jews were at there in Amos. Amos 5, I'll read a few verses there. God said to them, because they were doing their normal thing, but their heart wasn't in it. He was saying, he said, I hate, I despise your feast days. I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat peace. Take thou away from me the noise of thy song, for I will not hear the melody of thy vows. And he goes on. I think God is having the same response, the same reaction as what Jesus did. This lukewarmness, this everything may have been very orthodox at Laodicea. But the Lord Jesus could see right through their practice and he saw their heart. And it sickened him. He saw possibly a heartless robotic religion. And yet, they had no knowledge of their situation. They thought they were great. But the Lord saw their external activity, but He saw their internal reality. And He said, You're a sham. He said, you're a pretend, you're playing church. You're a hypocrite. Lukewarmness is sometimes displayed in disinterest in the kingdom of God. You're just interested in your own comfortable ease or your own endeavors and passions. I'm going to change that. I said your, our. We're just interested in our own comfortable ease or endeavors and passions. Those who are lukewarm will never brave any inconvenience or abandon any comfort for the kingdom. Another attitude of lukewarmness is, I got it together. Please leave me alone. I got my act together. I know what I'm doing, I know where I'm going, I'm okay, don't mess with me. We say we're sinners, we say we're not perfect, but how we, how we, whether we believe that is dependent on when someone comes to us with an imperfection, or we become defensive. It's an attitude of lukewarmness. When lukewarm, it's easy to stop searching the scriptures with a hunger for righteousness and truth. It's easy to stop hating sin, to stop sacrificing for Christ and taking up that cross and suffering voluntarily for the cause of Christ. We no longer, a lukewarm person no longer sees the beauty of the Savior. We forgot the joy and the wonder of when we first met the Lord and how the burden of sin rolled off of our backs and we saw what the Lord did for us in Calvary and how he suffered for us, what he went through and he did it for us. We have lost the wonder of that. We have forgotten. We have our focus and our our attention is on other things. And how could we? How could we forget and turn to other things and be ungrateful and take the Lord for granted? Take for an example, a wife that wants to make a special meal for her husband. So she plans a surprise for him. She gets the children, babysits the children. She makes a special meal. He's at work. She does all this candlelight supper. And she makes his favorite food. And he comes home. And he eats it like she would have made beans and rice. And then he goes over in the living room and does his normal thing. And that would be an insult. That would be very disappointing. But how is it when we do that to the Lord? We take him for granted and we lose The wonder because he gave us more than a candlelight supper, even though that's a blessing. How could we ever be lukewarm with such an expression of love and redemption and forgiveness? Jesus despises self-complacency and half-hearted religion. That you're trying to embrace my blessings and benefits and privileges on the one hand, while you're also trying to gain and enjoy the world's privileges and benefits and pleasures on the other hand, and the result is this disgusting Christianity. It's like a fake tree, uh, like a yeah, like a fake tree <laughs> without any figs. It's cursed of God, he cannot bless that. And our prayers become dry and distant and faithless. There's no earnestness. There's no passion. There's just this complacent self-righteousness. And in that situation, in that situation, we are much more impacted by the world, by the spirit of the world around us. As, as a Christian, we cannot be associated with certain things. There's a certain ideal that is expected of us from unbelievers. I don't know if you interact with unbelievers, but there are certain things that they expect. They wouldn't expect you to use certain language. They wouldn't expect you to be money-hungry or to cheat, or to be dishonest, or to be conniving. They would expect you to be significantly disconnected from the issues that go on and that the world deals with. The man on the street does not understand that flesh and spirit dichotomy that we deal with. He may not understand it at all. All he understands, and he looks at Christians, he looks at their actions, and he looks at their attitudes. And sometimes he says, well, if that is Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. Lukewarmness will pull us world way. It will, it will allow us to be pulled that way. When I was a boy, we had a blacksmith shop in our area. And I went up there many a time and watched the blacksmith. And he had a horse to shoe. He would turn on that fan at the coals there on the hearth there. He'd turn on that fan. That's what you call the bellows years ago. <laughs> you got to get air in there to make that thing hot. And he'd take that He put that horseshoe in there. And he let it there till it was glowing. And it was glowing hot. He pulled it out with a tongs and he could put it on the anvil and he could hammer it and shape it to where he wants it to shape. He wants it. Now, what do you need to do with an iron? No, what happens to an iron if you just let it set on a table? It, it becomes more like the environment it is around. You just take that red hot metal and look, put it on the table and let it set there. And the worldly environment has an effect on it. And in time, there won't be a discernible difference between that glowing hot piece of metal that used to be glowing hot. No discernible difference between that and its environment. That is the destiny of every person, every Christian, who does not stay in the fire. The purifying fire of the Holy Spirit, of a walk with God, of a of obedience to the Spirit of God as He prompts us. If you do not stay in the fire of the Spirit of God, you will cool off. It is a given. It's the automatic thing that happens. If the environment that you if you do not stay in that environment, this Will happen. We are lukewarmed by our culture. The winds of the world cool us down continually. Some stay just close enough to the fire to get a little bit of heat, but they are close enough to the world to stay cooled down. That's called lukewarm. So what do we have to do to our souls to become lukewarm? Just leave it out in the world. Just flirt with it. Flirt with its music, its videos, its ideals, its visions, its fashions, its whatever. Whatever, if you just associate, if you just flirt with it, you take it out of the fire and you flirt with it, you will get lukewarm McLaren a commentator of the mid 1800s said this he uh, talked about being worn down against the flow he said this in the mid 1800s and it's, it's it's so relevant for today he said we live in an unbelieving world and we live in an environment where many professing Christians are leaving the certain and plain truths of scripture mid-1800s. They're either throwing them off or they are majorly questioning them. That can have a wearing-down effect on us. It's he's, He says it's illogical enough that it causes a diminished fervor on the part of us that do not doubt. It's foolish and it's strange, but it's true. It is very hard for us when so many people round about us are denying or at least questioning the principles that we have been taught to believe. To keep the freshness and fervor of our devotion in these areas. Just as it is very difficult for a man to keep up the warmth of his body in the midst of some creeping mist that enwraps everything. So with us. The presence, the atmosphere of doubt, depresses the vitality and the vigor of the Christian church. Where where it does not, though that part of the church where it does not intensify its faith and make it cleave more desperately to the things that are questioned, of course, by others. So, it's it, it, he he's pointing out basically a why. Uh, the environment that we are in, the questioning, the, the things that we – a lot of things. We're unusual. We believe a lot of things that generally society doesn't believe anymore. General Christianity doesn't. And if we don't remain in the fire, we will go the other way. That's what he's saying. It has, it has that effect. If you don't stir up the fire, you will cool down and you will join them oh I wasn't quite done with the quote beware then of unreasonably yielding so far to the influence of the prevailing unbelief as to make you grasp with a slacker hand the things which you still say you do not doubt that's the end quote Yeah. so am I lukewarm are you lukewarm Are we on a journey of getting hotter or cooler? I think I've brought to point out that we need to be aware of the tendency. There is a tendency to become lukewarm. And maybe we have periods of it. Maybe there's days or weeks or years where there's little passion or fire or love for the things of God. Don't blame anyone else for your lukewarmness. If I'm lukewarm, it's because I love my sin or my comfort or my agenda more than I love God. Now, according to the, uh, according to the Laodicean church, You can actually be lukewarm and not know it. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. They were oblivious. The latest scenes were oblivious of their sickening and disgusting condition. They saw three things about themselves. They said, We're rich, we're prosperous, and we need nothing. The Lord Jesus saw five things about them, and none of them what they saw. He said, You are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So like I said, sometimes we are simply unaware of our condition. We think it's normal. We think this is normal. And it's not normal. But this situation here is not normal. So all the results of the test are back. And the doctor says, we need to sit down and talk. You feel fine. In fact, you feel great. But there is stuff going inside of you that you must know about and that you must do something about. It's not good. So after Jesus gave them this horrible diagnosis, he comes to them and and I give you some advice? He said, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Now to buy means to exchange something with for something else you exchange with someone you when you buy you're exchanging you're giving something and receiving something <clears throat> so the lord jesus could be saying bring your artificial christianity and your temporal riches that you have and exchange it for the real thing exchange your self righteousness which they clearly had for my righteousness, which comes by faith. Exchange your willfulness for my will. Exchange your sin and your agenda for my holiness. Exchange your complacency for my zeal. Buy of me, the Lord said, I have everything you need and everything you really want. If you exchange with me, I'll take your poverty and I'll take your blindness and I'll take your nakedness and I'll give you true riches. Just lose your ability to make fine clothing and buy clothing from me, which is clean and pure and white and holy. Give me your gold and I will give you eternal treasures in heaven. So he says, buy of me. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Those I love, I rebuke and chasten. I'd like to speak here a little bit about rebuking and chastening. There has many a young person left the home that had reproof and discipline in it because the parents loved the child and the child needed some correction. And instead of responding to it, the child reacts to it. The world often calls rebuke and chastening abusive. And the child or the teenager believes the world and they believe that they may be in an abusive situation. And sometimes those that rescue those that get out think they are helping someone out of an abusive situation. Now, there are abusive situations, but the point I want to bring out this morning is most of our homes, by a good sex, good segment of the world would be considered abusive. I remember in Romania when they had the orphanage there, and that's in that book. Well, I don't know if it's in the book, but I, I remember hearing about it. They, the government, uh, they almost shut down the orphanage because they would not allow the children to watch television. And the government said, this is abusive. This is cultic. This is whatever. I don't know what for words they used. Why did they withhold that from the children? Because they loved them. Churches are sometimes called abusive when they hold to truthful standards. When they confront people about their sin. I remember reading about a church in the south where there was a woman, a member of the church, a church that still practiced discipline, and this woman got in an adulterous relationship. And they went through the process of trying to redeem her, and they, they couldn't. They, she, she, she was, And so they did. They brought it to the church, and they um, publicized her sin, like Matthew 18 says. And this woman was furious. She said, that, was, that is privacy. My privacy was violated. And she sued the church for violating her privacy. So some things that some people say are abusive are not. Rebuke and discipline usually don't feel good, but from the heart of Jesus, it comes from a heart of love. It comes from the heart of sadness and a heart that as sadness of what has been lost. In that relationship, the Lord Jesus comes and He comes with counsel. He, He is yearning for a restoration of what they usually had. with that church was a vibrant church when that person was a vibrant person, and He's yearning for that again. That is why He says, "I rebuke and chasten because I want what is has been lost." Be zealous, therefore. <laughs> if this is you, if this is me, if, if, if this has spoken to you, if the shoe fits you, this morning, it's—is it okay to get agitated just a little bit? Be zealous. Maybe it's okay to be agitated a lot. If the shoe fits then get agitated a little bit about it. You know, the world is often more zealous about their empty agenda than Christians are about the kingdom of God, eternal kingdom. So be zealous, therefore, and repent. If I find myself Lacking. If I find myself in the middle, if I find myself at a place I ought not to be, there's only one right thing to do. Only one. That is to repent. Because the Lord Jesus has no place for lukewarmness. There's no blessing there. There's no, it makes him sick. And we cannot be neutral. We, we, we need to be sold out somewhere. Either sold out to the world or sold out to the Lord. <clears throat> so what is it? What is it that keeps me from being sold out to the Lord? You know, that's always what idolatry is. Forsaking God for something else. God is a jealous God and He will not share the throne of our heart with someone else. With a rival. Whatever, whatever it is, whatever it is in our lives that is keeping us from a wholehearted surrender to the Lord, whatever it is, we need to deal with it. That idol, if we want God. Repentance. An humble awareness of sin a clear recognition of past shortcomings and then an abhorrence of those things and joined with that a resolute purpose of mind and heart to begin a new course you it's it's a recognition of the shortcomings and an abhorrence of it and then a resolve to go a different direction. That's what repentance is. And we have need of new beginnings. Remember Abraham. He he had Bethel. He built an altar. Then he went down to Egypt. When that famine. And then when he came back from Egypt. He came to that same place. And he built an altar again. It was a new beginning. There was... What we would think, it doesn't actually say that in the Scripture, but it's sort of reading between the lines. That was a a low spot in Abram's life. And he came back and he made a new beginning. Sometimes that's where we find ourselves at. We need a new beginning. Don't be ashamed. If we've been living a low and inconsistent Christian life, don't be ashamed to make a new beginning and to break with The past. In fact, that is exactly what Christ is doing, asking them to do. He pleads for us and invites us to do. Blessed are the spiritual beggars, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Bring your nothingness, your failures, and I will give you gold. Bring your Nakedness, and I will clothe you. Bring your blindness, that what you couldn't see, and I will actually enable you to see it. And then, when you can see, you can see the glory of God. And He alone can help us see the spiritual world that we haven't ever seen or maybe have forgotten about. Don't compare yourself with others. So we as a church, we have more truth than other churches? So what? So what if you have more truth than other churches? When the Lord Jesus judges, he's going to judge you by his standard, not by ours. And it's only those who are sold out for Christ are the ones he desires. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man open, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. This it's a promise given to the people in Laodicea. The assumption is in the Laodicea they were all lukewarm. I'm not making that assumption here this morning. <laughs> but, the promise is only to those who recognize their lukewarmness and respond to it. Because this lukewarmness, we call, talk about the enemy of our souls. This lukewarmness is an enemy which we must overcome if we will persevere. To him that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and I sat down at my father and his throne. And I was meditating on this. I was was really amazed. The Lord reserves the greatest promise to the most abhorrent church. See, all the other churches receive promise for overcomers. The other promises, uh, and I'll read them here, the right to eat from the tree of life. That's a wonderful promise. The crown of life, the hidden manna, the authority over nations, to be dressed in white, a pillar in the temple. Wonderful, wonderful promises to overcomers. But to the worst church, he gives the most glorious promise, to sit on the throne with God. Christ, can you get any higher than that? The highest promise. It surpasses the others. But I want us to recognize we are just following the Lord because what does it say? Even as I also overcame, the Lord Jesus overcame and he is set down with my father on his throne. All we are doing is following the Lord Jesus. He overcame and He's sitting down on His Father's throne and now He tells us, you overcome and you sit down with me on my throne. You know, I'm not a leader. I'm not one, I'm not a person, uh, to initiate a lot of things. I'm not one, I'm not an entrepreneur. I don't think things up and then Walk your way through and through obstacles. I'm not that kind of person. I'm a follower. Well, that's all the Lord is asking us to do is to follow him, follow his example. With the same dedication, he's the leader. We are followers with the same dedication that he followed the father's will. This is the same dedication that we shall follow him as well. And that is actually the clear true answer to lukewarmness. Follow Jesus as he followed his father. That is the answer to lukewarmness the, in a nutshell. I didn't read this book. I, uh, it's uh, some kind of a novel about Chinese Christians. And I don't know all the details, but it appears to me like an American businessman wanted to help a certain pastor in China that was in prison. And he wanted to assist him in whatever way he could through the government or whatever. And so he came from the United States and went to China. And while he was in China and interacting with his pastor, he gets thoroughly converted. Uh, He might have been a Christian back He was a Christian, but he really got right with God. And he was talking then to this pastor who was still in prison, and he's ready to go home. He was not successful in the sense of getting him out of prison, apparently not. And he is expressing deep concern about his own return to the United States about the ease and the prosperity of life in the United States might push him back into the spiritual uh, complacency. He might backslide. Probably he was a Christian, had backslidden, and he got cleaned up, and he didn't want to backslide. So that bruised and scarred pastor on the other side of the barbed wire said to this newly, freshly converted American, said, I will pray for you. And then the Americans said, well, what will you pray for? See, I will pray that you will face persecution. And that you and that through that you will grow and that you will learn to stand strong and that you will know that you are in a war and that you will put on your armor and you will learn to use the sword of the spirit. To which the Americans said, you mean so I'm praying that you suffer less you're going to pray that I suffer more. To which he replies, I do not wish to see you suffer, my friend, but I perceive it may be the only way for you to thrive. In our churches, we have little to hope in but our God. But in America, you have much to hope in besides God. And then he said these words, The test of prosperity is not easily passed. The test of prosperity is not easily passed. Now I'm going to close with a few verses in because I was in a, I was in First um, Peter in a book study of First Peter and I sort of laid it aside. But right here in the end is actually the next verses that I was going to cover. <laughs> I like to read it um, in first Peter I'll just read it here Peter was writing to a suffering church and he says in verse seven that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes though it be tried with fire might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ whom having not seeing ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. These were people who were not lukewarm. Maybe 40 years later they were. Maybe their children were. But right here is exactly where we ought to be. The trial of our faith is precious, and though it be tried with fire, and he's praying that it may be found under the praise and glory at the appearing of Christ. And then we love the Lord. We're just rejoicing and receiving the entire end of it, even the salvation of our souls. Well, I was close with that. So why don't don't we just, uh, if we could, let's just kneel for a prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that you love us so much to show us in your word what you love and what your heart is. You show us what you hate and you tell us what to do about it. And Lord, as I think of us this morning and various places and various situations that we find ourselves in, I pray, Lord, you take these words out of your scripture as they were spoken, Lord. And help us, each one of us, to examine our own hearts. Lord, I pray for each one of us that we would receive the end of our faith, even the salvation of our souls. Lord, I pray that you would be precious and dear to each one of us. Lord, I pray that we could rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory daily, even in the midst of trial. Lord, whatever is keeping us from that, I pray you'd help us to identify it and to remove it and to come and, and according to your your uh, direction and counsel, to buy those things which are really precious and were really enduring. Lord, I pray. Pray for each one of us. Pray you would uh, guide us as a church and as individuals. Pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.